Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, we always talk about the signs of Matthew chapter 24. And these are signs about what's going to happen in the last days leading up to the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Today on the program, we will be looking at those signs, a lot of those signs. We might not talk about them specifically, but we're going to mention them. We'll be talking about wars and rumors of wars. We'll be talking about the Temple Mount and the city of Jerusalem. We'll be talking about the control for the the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. But remember, these are signs to the return of Jesus Christ to the earth, not to the rapture of the church. But if we're seeing them happening right now, how much closer are we to the rapture of the church? We need to bring our broadcast partners to the program today. Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, Winky Madad, Dr. Richard Schmidt, Paul Blair. Rick, let's get started. The United States started carrying out retaliatory strikes on Friday in Iraq and Syria. And I want to find out from Ken Timmerman, you know, although there were no locations inside Iran, which is clearly behind the drone attack that we talked about last week. So let's find out from Ken where we are. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Ken Timmerman with us. He is our expert on geopolitical affairs. He's an author, an analyst. You can find out more about him by going to his website at kentimmerman.com. Ken, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Rick. Thank you. Ken, we've got a lot to get to, so I'll jump right into it. First thing I'd like to talk about, and this happened after our program last week, the drone attack that killed three U.S. troops in the Middle East, and then the response. Can you tell us what is going on there? Well, Rick, you know, this is going to continue. The Biden administration, they are not deterring Iran. And they have announced this week on Thursday from the Pentagon, Secretary Lloyd Austin said that the United States is going to have an extensive retaliatory uh, program against Iranian assets in Yemen, Syria, Jordan and Iraq. And guess what happened after that? First, there was no U.S. retaliation to speak of. And second, the Iranians started pulling IRGC officers away from those bases. Uh, This is exactly how you do not deter a country like the Islamic regime in Iran. Uh, A friend of mine, Michael Rubin, who used to be at DOD, is now at the American Enterprise Institute, calls it military virtue signaling. So we've announced that we're going to launch these massive retaliatory attacks. The Iranians are getting their assets out of the way. It's a complete uh, flop. Ken, it kind of seems like a subterfuge in a way. It's just something for uh, maybe the administration to cover themselves. Is that the way you see it? Well, it, it look, they do not want to engage in a war with Iran. And what they continue to tell us is that they're more worried about escalation. In other words, about a wider war than they are about deterring the Iranian regime. Look, the Biden administration has thrown a lifeline to the Iranians, and they did that as soon as they came into office. Remember, oil sales from Iran were just 400,000 barrels a day when Trump left office. Uh, now they're over 1.5 million barrels a day, and that's to China alone. Loan, by the way, they've earned over $100 billion in foreign uh, currency sales since Biden came into office. These are things that, uh, you know, should not be happening. They have been enabling the Iranian regime. And the result is very clear and it's very uh, predictable to see all of these attacks, over 160 of them so far against U.S. assets around the region. They're going to continue. They're going to continue because we are not doing what it takes to actually deter Iran. And to do that, we have to hit them very hard, the way that President Trump did killing Qasem Soleimani. 
Well, Ken, I've got one more question before we leave the Middle East and look at other areas of the world. But there are plans that I have heard coming out of the UK, possibly even the United States as well, plans to recognize a quote-unquote Palestinian state. This is before any negotiations take place with Israel. This would be a preemptive act. Can you tell us what you know about this? So this is a plan to go to the United Nations before there's any Israeli-Palestinian negotiation and declare a Palestinian state. And the thought at the State Department is that the United States would then not veto that resolution. And so, ta-da, you would create a Palestinian state out of nothing. There is no Palestinian state. I heard John Bolton on uh, one TV program saying, what are you talking about, a state of mind? You cannot authorize a state of mind. Uh, this is There is no Palestinian state. There's nobody there to govern. Nobody is going to trust them. And the very fact that the UK and the United States would consider uh, this type of step after October 7th, to me, is frankly just plain obscene. Well, it certainly is. It's rewarding the terrorist acts of October 7th, isn't it? Look, the Palestinians carried out a massacre with explicit genocidal intent. And now the United States is going to reward them. I, I think this is the kind of thing that is really going to uh, get Biden in a lot of trouble uh, with ordinary Democrats, not the far left of his base, because that's the what he is catering to right now. But it's going to get him in trouble with ordinary Democrats, people who still support uh, the state of Israel in the Democrat Party. And I think uh, he's going to find that uh, when it comes time in November, uh, this is going to come back and bite him. Well, we'll continue to follow up on that situation. This is something that is very concerning, and this is uh, unfortunately par for the course for this administration. Well, let's move out of the Middle East and let's go to Europe. Let's talk about Russia and Ukraine, the war that has been on the back burner since the uh, Israel-Gaza war started, but it's still continuing on. And now Russia is preparing for elections. Are these real elections? What's going on there? Is Vladimir Putin, uh, is there a possibility that he could get voted out? Uh, no, there's no possibility he could get voted out. The elections will be held in uh, March. He's running for his fifth term as president. He may have a token opposition leader, uh, a guy named Boris Nadezhina, who uh, has been somewhat critical of the war in Ukraine. But look, these are show elections. And the interesting thing I find, the ironic thing I find, is that uh, the closer that Russia and Iran become strategically militarily, the closer they become politically. Uh, Russia has an elections commission, just like the Iranian regime has an elections commission. And that election commission makes sure that it will not allow anybody who really challenges Putin to be on the ballot. So you've got somebody like uh, Navalny, Alexei Navalny, uh, who, who's now in jail. He's been in jail for a number of years. He is a real challenger to Putin. You're not going to see him on the ballot. You've also got a TV journalist named Yekaterina Donsova. She is not going to be on the ballot either. So these are going to be sham elections, or as we call them in Iran, a selection in March where Putin will return in a landslide. Well, these elections will take place against the backdrop of a continued war with Ukraine, a war that began over two years ago. And Ukraine has been supported by the West, particularly the United States has supported them. But there has recently surfaced more evidence of Ukrainian corruption in the aid that they have received. 
the Ukrainian military has discovered a what I would call a token corruption scandal, $40 million, uh, artillery shells that were not delivered, uh, bribes that were put in the pockets of Ukrainian generals. They will be punished uh, quite publicly, I am sure. Uh, this is out of about $113 billion that the United States alone has given the Ukrainians, U.S. taxpayers have given the Ukrainians, and only uh, about 40% of that in military aid. We don't even know where the rest of it went. Uh, ostensibly, it goes to pay their civil servants, to pay the retirement, the pension funds of government employees. Uh, we don't know how much of that was siphoned off in corruption. This week, we had the European Union agree to give Ukraine $54 billion in military aid. Uh, and this came as, of course, the aid in the U.S. Congress has been stalled as Biden wants to tie it to a border deal that would allow 5,000 illegal immigrants a day to flood across our southern border before the U.S. does anything about it. So uh, Ukraine is on the back burner. Zelensky is very worried about this. The Europeans have stepped up to the plate, and Biden is still playing politics over the U.S. border. Ken, we've covered the Middle East, we've covered Europe, we've covered the Russia-Ukraine crisis, but there are so many things taking place around the world. I'd like to move to Asia now and look at North Korea. There are reports coming out this week that Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, is prepping for war. Can you explain to us what's taking place? Look, President Trump held three summits with Kim Jong-un. And during that time, uh, he did not test his nuclear weapons. He did not launch ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles capable of reaching the United States. He stopped the missile tests in 2017. Well, guess what? A year and two months after Biden takes office on March 24th, 2022, Kim relaunches his missile tests. He starts them up again. He's had eight of those ICBM tests since then. By the way, that first test occurred just a month after Russia went into Ukraine. So there is a real concern here that Kim is coordinating his activities with Moscow, that his threats to the United States could even be coordinated with China as well. So we will be distracted from being able to focus on Ukraine or focusing on the Middle East. And Ken, what's the end game there as we look at this situation? What is Kim Jong-un trying to do? And, and, and of course, this is a very concerning relationship that he has with Russia. Basically, two bad actors getting together and coordinating their efforts can't be good for the rest of the world, can it? Well, that's right. And so the U.S. The State Department has come out and said they are deeply concerned about the coordination between North Korea and Russia. So they've been talking to China and they've been asking China if they can somehow restrain Kim Jong-un, who's been visiting this naval shipyard recently, talking about a new generation of warship and, and ballistic missile submarines. You know, for the U.S. to talk to China about North Korea's relationship to Russia is kind of like the New York police commissioner who's worried about the Gambino crime family and going to the Sinaloa cartel to talk to them, seeing if they might be able to re restrain the Gambinos. It's pathetic. It shows the weakness of this administration. Rick, this is not strategy. This is high school Model UN. Well, very concerning things taking place all over the world, Ken. As always, we appreciate you providing uh, insight and wisdom as you look at these situations and help explain to us what's going on. We appreciate that, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick. God bless. Rick, Ken, thank you so much. Great job, as always, focusing on events that are happening 
And really, when we focus on these events, these are leading to events that will take place during that tribulation, that seven-year period of time in the future after the rapture of the church. Wow, how much closer are we to the rapture today? Well, let's uh, take a break. When we come back, our Middle East News Update with David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Violence spikes ahead of a nationwide vote in Pakistan. The Islamic State shot and killed one election candidate as he campaigned on Wednesday. It's the second murder of its kind since January 10. Mark is a gospel worker serving with Global Catalytic Ministries. It really is a pivotal time in Pakistan because an election that takes place next week on the 8th. They're at a, a very tense time. The country's on edge. Several candidates' houses and offices were also attacked in Balochistan this week. Pakistan's Election Commission summoned an emergency meeting with security officials to discuss the deteriorating law and order situation yesterday. There's a lot of conflict on the border. There are multiple terrorist attacks against Pakistani government facilities and local nationals. Pray church planters will keep their eyes on Jesus amid escalating tensions and the threat of nuclear war with Iran. And finally... Would you prayerfully consider investing in Christian leaders in need of discipleship and mentoring? Joe Handley with A3 shares about one such leader whom he met on a recent trip to a restricted access nation. One of the leaders came up to us and said, I I have no mentors. They're a first-generation Christian that has been a pastor for at least a decade, and there's no one speaking into their life. Discipleship is a common need among leaders within A3 cohorts, a need which A3 seeks to meet. Leaders build peer-to-peer relationships and connect with faculty who have years of disciple-making experience. As they're built up, they're then able to strengthen the local church. You can be part of this by praying for and giving toward A3's 2024 Matching Grant Challenge to invest in the future generation of Christian leaders. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener-supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. And together, the Great Commission happens. Look for links at missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. This is the section of our program we call our Middle East News Update. It's a time when we take a look at news from around the Middle East in general, but Israel in particular. To do that, we have our good friend, the journalist Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. You're welcome, Rick. Glad to be with you. Well, Dave, there's been so much going on, and you've kept us updated. You've done that for many years now, but of course, especially since October 7th and the events that took place there on that horrific day. As we continue on with this work, and you give us an update? What's the latest? Well, Rick, the main action this week was once again in the north. Of course, fighting continuing in Gaza, but in the north, we had more Hezbollah attacks upon northern Israel, Kiryat Shmona, the main city up there. The IDF responded on Friday by hitting uh, a base that uh, was said to be Iran's uh, outside of Damascus, uh, sending several rockets at it from the Golan Heights. Explosions were heard in the area, and Iran later confirmed that Israel had struck to one of its bases and said that a senior commander was killed in the attack. Meanwhile, Lebanese media is reporting that Iran is pulling most of its senior commanders out of Syria that it has their Revolutionary Guard members mostly, in anticipation of the U.S. promised 
retaliation strikes after three soldiers were killed in northern Jordan last weekend. Of course, President Biden has announced that action will be taken in Syria and Iraq, according to several media reports, but not in Iran itself. And uh, it's expected that that will take place over several days. Uh, an Israeli media outlet reported there's some concern that Russia may respond directly with its uh, Air Force base, of course, in Latakia, north of Damascus, northwest of Damascus. It has fighters there, and it could respond if U.S. forces are inside of Syria when they're striking at the targets. Now, Israel usually strikes from out over the Mediterranean Sea or from Israeli territories, so they don't go into a Syrian airspace usually. So we'll see what happens there. Meanwhile, there was another uh, incident in the south, uh, Rick, on Friday. Uh, the Houthi rebels fired a missile at Eilat, the southern Israeli port city, a tourist town usually, but of course no tourists are at present. And Israel once again deployed its arrow anti-missile system, more advanced uh, and older one than the Iron Dome that is used for more shorter range rockets, and successfully took out the missile. The explosion could be heard in a lot. In Gaza, of course, fighting continues, especially in the south in Khan Yunus. The chief of staff said basically Israel had finished with its operations there and is now mopping up. But there was uh, some cheering and um, celebrations going on on Friday after uh, Qatar reported that a hostage release deal and a ceasefire that would last several months possibly is uh, imminent. However, news reports in Israel denied that. Several cabinet ministers were, were quoted as saying, we're not near that. And the overall leader of Hamas, Ismail Haniya said that there would be no permanent agreement unless Israel agreed to completely pull its forces out of Gaza and not return, something that Prime Minister Netanyahu has said will not take place. Well, David, a lot to talk about as we listen to your news update on the war that is taking place in Israel right now. One of the things that I would like to get you to talk about is a report that came out this week that UNRWA, the United Nations organization that is charged with supporting the Palestinian people, was actually complicit in the October 7th terrorist attacks. This is very concerning, isn't it? It is, Rick. Uh, Israel uh, announced a little over a week ago that 12 UNRWA workers uh, had participated in the massacre, had crossed into Israel, participated in the massacre. Now, this comes after years of reports that the UNRWA schools were teaching hatred of Israel, that they were complementing the Hamas terror group by what they were teaching. And also it's been discovered over the last three months of fighting, Rick, much uh, evidence on the ground of UNRWA involvement with Hamas, weapons stored in schools, weapons stored underneath tunnels underneath UNRWA positions, and of course the aid distribution that's going into the Gaza Strip now charges continuing that Hamas is taking most of that aid for itself, for its own workers, its own members. And by the way, the protests continue, Rick, on the border crossing into Gaza from Israel, the Kerem Shalom crossing. Every day now hundreds of Israelis gather to protest the continued uh, trucks going into Gaza with this aid, uh, saying the same thing, that this is only prolonging the war, this is only allowing more Israeli soldiers to die, uh, the hostages are still being held, and we're giving them uh, food and fuel and other things. So 
Uh, the controversy continues, but of course, several countries, including the U.S. and Britain, have uh, severed their funding of UNRWA for the time being, at least, until an investigation can be completed into these allegations. But it's clear that Israel wants UNRWA out of there. Prime Minister Netanyahu said they cannot return as a force there. We need to have other international aid organizations that are not under the sway of Hamas. And it has to be pointed out that most of the U.N. workers are Palestinians, Rick. They're not coming from other countries or foreigners that are there in Gaza. There are some, but most of them are Palestinians, and apparently many of them support the Hamas cause. Well, David, you mentioned protesters at the Gaza border. Well, there's protesters on the other side of the political fence, if you will, that are protesting Prime Minister Netanyahu. And they are saying, end the war, negotiate to get the hostages released. And Prime Minister Netanyahu is saying, this kind of protest, this kind of pressure is actually aiding Hamas and encouraging them to ask for more negotiations. Does this make sense? Well, that certainly is what the prime minister believes, Rick. And he did say to um, reporters this week that the daily protests taking place outside of his private home down on the coast, also sometimes in Jerusalem at the public home of the prime minister, are counterproductive that it only encourages Hamas to up its demands, as you were saying. And, of course, this is mostly families and friends of the hostages. And, of course, they're very passionate, want to see their people uh, released. But, of course, it's not just up to Netanyahu. It's not clear, Rick, that if the IDF pulled out today from Gaza that the hostages would be released. I mean, they've been holding hostages for decades, Hamas has. And uh, they still have the remains of earlier uh, terror attacks, uh, uh, Israelis killed in these attacks being held still in Gaza. So, yes, it seems to be counterproductive, but it's also very, very clear that the negotiations are very difficult for this uh, hostage release uh, deal and ceasefire deal. Of course, President Biden wants it, especially during an election year. There's talk that the Saudis will make a formal peace with Israel if the war ends soon, this sort of thing. But again, Hamas has to be eradicated, the Israeli government believes, and most of the ministers believe, and uh, that job isn't complete yet. Certainly is it. Well, let's move on. You spoke earlier about the fact that Russia may get involved in the situation if certain lines are crossed between Israel and Syria or Israel and Lebanon. Russia, they are isolated on the world seed because of their war with Ukraine, but they are strengthening their ties with countries like China and certainly Iran. And so their influence in the Middle East is something that they can count on and that they may want to capitalize on. This also goes back to what we do this program for, because we look at events that are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. But it certainly does seem like this atmosphere is ripe for Russia to engage more in the Middle East, which is something Bible prophecy says will happen. Well, it does, Rick. And, uh, you know, we thought when I first moved to Israel in 1980, we thought then that uh, a clash with the Soviet Union was imminent. Uh, Ronald Reagan had just been elected president. We had heavy fighting going on in 82 between Syria and Israel, mainly in Lebanon, but other places as well. And Russia was very much backing Syria, as they are today. But then, of course, the Soviet Union fell apart. It looked like uh, things were reversing. Relations with Israel improved. Over a million Russian-speaking Jews moved to Israel, mainly in the 1990s. 
And many people thought, oh, this problem's uh, in the past. Well, in 2014, Russia recommitted to aiding uh, the Syrian regime and sent in a lot more forces and sent in more aircraft and more fighters and more advisors. And uh, very much their alliance with Syria is very strong. And of course, they are strongly engaged with Iran now, getting a lot of their drone weapons from Iran. And of course, the key, as you mentioned, they have a partnership, growing partnership with China. That is the world's, uh, uh, one of the world's biggest countries. India, they say, is now a little bit larger. But uh, all of this is significant because, as you say, the prophets indicated that Roche uh, Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38, at a certain point, Russia would come against Israel, would attack it, actually attack it. Now, I don't think we're at that point, but we are seeing the steps taken all the time leading us up to that. And certainly the U.S. and Russia uh, and, and its allies, the U.S. allies, NATO allies, may be in full war with uh, Russia at any time if indeed Putin uh, goes into the Baltic states, as uh, many reports are indicating he's planning to do, possibly even this year. So keep your eye on on the horizon and uh, keep listening to this program because I know you do some great reports on that. Well, David, we have you to thank for many of those great reports. We appreciate that. We look forward to talking to you again soon. God bless. Thanks, Rick. We got to take a break when we come back. Winky Madad and Dr. Richard Schmidt, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Nigeria was the most deadly place to be a Christian in 2023, and it hasn't stopped in the new year. At least 31 Christians were killed this January. Todd Nettleton with the Voice of the Martyrs USA urges us to pray boldness for the followers of Christ and to pray that government leaders in Nigeria will succeed in protecting religious freedom in the face of terrorism. Also, contact your government representatives and call for them to respond to the persecution of Christians in Nigeria. Meanwhile, we can't do much to change conditions on the ground for our Christian brothers and sisters in places like Iran. However, Lana Silk with Transform Iran says prayer moves the hand of God. Yet in order to fight well, you must use the most effective weapons. Believers like you and me need to know how to pray and what the most pressing needs are. Transform Iran has two solutions. We'll connect you with the information you need at missionnews.org. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we're going to focus on events that are taking place in Israel, and the United States is playing a major role in condemning settlers in the Judea-Samaria area. we got to go to our good friend, Winky Madad, to talk to us about this. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Winky Madad with us. He's a frequent guest on the program, one of our favorite broadcast partners. He's the former mayor of Shiloh. Winky, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure and actually a privilege. Well, Winky, we appreciate that. And we know, and I mentioned earlier, you're the former mayor of Shiloh, Shiloh in what they would call the West Bank or the Occupied Territories. We call it Judea and Samaria because that's what the Bible calls it. But uh, Winky, the Jewish residents of that area are in the news this week. President Biden issued an executive order, and it essentially targets Israeli settlers in the area of Judea and Samaria or the West Bank. Could you tell us a little bit about this? Well, about two months ago or so, maybe three months, there was floated an idea that visa restrictions 
uh, would be uh, set up against violent settlers. In other words, uh, not that they would want to visit the United States between you and me, but uh, if they wanted to, they couldn't get a visa. And now he's made an announcement, uh, which I'm actually looking at right now to be exactly sure. It's entitled Further Measures to Promote Peace, Security and Stability in the West Bank. Uh, He does mention the statement does mention attacks by Israeli settlers against Palestinians and Palestinian attacks against Israelis. And uh, to get to the point, it names four Jewish residents of Judea and Samaria, details some of the alleged violent acts that they did, and says that there were all sorts of financial restrictions, bank accounts, dealing with them. It's under the Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, okay? So, of course, this presents at least three problems, in my opinion. Number one, and I'm going to test you and our listeners, have you ever heard of anybody from the Palestinian Authority that was caught up in the terrorist incident that had a similar order made against him with his Mm -hmm. name? No, right. Uh, That's the easy question, right? The second one is that, wait a second, didn't Congress pass a bill called the Taylor Force Act, which meant that um, America would not give the Palestinian Authority monies if they continued to supply what we call pay for slave. In other words, uh, stipends, grants, uh, financial support for either the terrorists themselves while sitting in jail or their families if they're not alive. And I think, if my memory deals me well, that has been fumbled, if I can use a uh, upcoming uh, Super Bowl term, that whole thing is not in place. The third thing, to be very quick, is that it's problematic from a constitutional point of view, because these people have not been in a United States court of law, and haven't even been found guilty in an Israeli court of law. So it's just like depending on, as I I look through the uh, order here, videos, newspaper reports, et cetera, like that. Very sort of, you know, you wouldn't want, you and your brother and anybody else in your family wouldn't want to go to court on a charge of perhaps violence of any degree based on the evidence this Biden uh, piece of paper does. So it sounds very, political, diplomatic, throwing the American weight around rather than saying, well, let's do justice. Well, I would certainly agree with that. And you look at this situation, problematic is one of the words you use. Political is one of the words you use. And I I believe the optics of this situation, and maybe President Biden is doing it to appease the left side of his administration or those that would uh, be anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian or pro-Hamas. And not saying that we're either, but we're like you said, we're looking at the side of justice. The optics of this are intentionally negative for Israel and pro-Palestinian, and that is not good for Israel and the fact that they're in the midst of a war right now, is it? A, you're correct. Secondly, I always thought the United States was supposed to be even-handed. I mean, I've been around for a while, as you know, and that phrase, even-handed, has been around for about the past 40 to 50 years at least. So I I don't think this... Now, I I don't want anybody listening to this program to think that I'm pro-violence. I'm just talking about 
the essential of the proclamation. It's called Pro Presidential Proclamation 8693. And I don't think it's helping. It's, it's, it's as you indicated, anybody neutral, uh, right, would think, well, he's Israel bashing, as we call the phrase. And as I pointed out in one of my three points previously, there's a lot more Arabs residing in Judea and Samaria in the territory of the Palestinian National Authority that should be under this uh, proclamation as well. Uh, but I don't see their names here, uh, to tell you the truth. Well, we'll move on from that subject, but we'll keep an eye on that because it is certainly an interesting political development. But I'd like to move on uh, while I've got you on the line here and ask you another question or two. Uh, this one also of political significance. There has been many protests outside of Prime Minister Netanyahu's personal home this week. And Prime Minister Netanyahu came out and said, essentially, you're giving aid to the enemy. You're making a potential deal that we might strike with Hamas to get our hostages back. You're making it worse. You're encouraging Hamas. Is, uh, is this something that you could speak on? Well, look, the whole deal is very problematic because instead of dealing with it rationally, and I understand that most people deal with it emotionally, especially the families of those who were abducted and kidnapped and are being held. However, a, a president, a prime minister, or whatever who heads a state must, of course, deal more with the public aspect of what the deal means, any deal, in this specific case, potentially, according to the news we're listening to, and again, it's all being slanted between you and me, we're talking about perhaps 150 terrorists, including murderers, for every single Israeli released. Now, you can do the math, because as I think I said on the previous program, I'm very poor at math. But 150 <laughs> times 150 is a lot of murder. Mm. The other point I just want to make, because we're doing this very quickly, is that I'll, I'll quiz you again. Have you ever recalled a Hamas-Israel hostage switch, or whatever you want to call it, deal, or transfer, whatever you want to call it, where in the end... Even when the people were transferred back and forth, Hamas held up its side of the bargain. You know, like continued ceasefire, no violence, no rockets, no terror tunnels, no building up its arms. No. So, I mean, we've mm -hmm. got a lot of things to look back on uh, in terms of experience. That means that this is all negative. We have to think about the future of the Jewish uh, and any non-Jews living in Israel. I recall to all our listeners about 20 uh, Thai uh, uh, agricultural workers were killed. There were other non-Jewish people who were killed on the on uh, October 7th. Uh, so uh, it, he's got his work cut out for him, Mr. Uh, Netanyahu. And uh, I suggest people take a look at some news coming out, as I see recently, that one of the political strategists who is uh, consulting for some of the families in Washington right now, was a former Clinton official who works with a fund that has money involved from Qatar. Now, if you don't know what I'm hinting at, Qatar is the main financial sponsor of Hamas. So it's like a snake eating itself. And I don't think Mr. Netanyahu should be under the pressure of people who are getting involved in this type of politics. 
Well, one final question for you, and uh, as we continue to look at this, you sent me an article this week, and I thought it was very interesting considering what was supposed to be the impetus for this war with Hamas. They called it the Alaska Flood. They were there to protect the Al-Aqsa Mosque on what we would call the Temple Mount there in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, as you look at that, we've talked about it quite a bit on this show. The Temple Mount has a varied history. We do know, even though some people may reject it, that it was the site of of two previous temples built for the Jewish people. Of course, it's now the Alaska Mosque, but there is some recent archaeological evidence that there was also a Christian presence on the Temple Mount there. If you could, could you talk about this a little bit and what it means for the Temple Mount area there in Jerusalem? Well, let's let's set us our, our listeners straight. Arab Muslims only appeared in Jerusalem and took over the Temple Mount about 600 years after the Second Temple was destroyed. Mm-hmm. In between that period, you had Romans, Byzantine Empire, a Persian invasion, and the Roman pagans and the Byzantine. Christians. So there was a lot to do there. And the Arabs always claimed that they came there and it was empty. It was like a a ball field or whatever you want, a garbage dump or something like that. And now uh, we're finding archaeological historical evidence that Christians were at least on the Temple Mount because these coins had crosses and they come from a period when the Byzantine Empire had already become Christian. And there was always a question, was there a church or some similar structure on the Temple Mount in which Christians uh, prayed or, or carried on devotional rites? And uh, it would be great if we could excavate portions of the Temple Mount to find out historically what happened there. Of course, that would probably set off a uh, Islamic reaction, but it just indicates that their approach to the Temple Mount is actually subjugating not only religious beliefs, as we discussed here about either Christians or Jews praying on the Temple Mount, but even simply finding out, you know, secular history. What happened? What was built there? What, what, were there any foundations of a building? Was there water troughs? Was there uh, rooms, uh, warehouses? I don't know. Wouldn't it be interesting? Uh, and uh, these things could be done probably today very easily and covered up again if necessary. We do that all the time here in Israel. Uh, so there wouldn't be much damage done at all, if at all. Uh, but again, as you say, it points to the fact that irrationality is the order of the day, both in Jerusalem and other places here in the Middle East, rather than a, a sense of responsibility to history and everybody who lived in Israel, in Jerusalem for the past three to 4,000 years. I certainly agree, and I believe context is important. I believe truth and the actual reality on the ground is very important, and that's what we do here. We try to give you the information and the facts, and we appreciate you doing that for us as well, Winky, as you do every time you come on the program. Thank you so much, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much for having me on. Goodbye to you. And our listeners. Well, Israel Madad certainly is our go-to, and I'm so thankful that he has uh, he keeps us aware, you know, of what's taking place there, what's happening with the Temple Mount. 
protests, even the condemnation of the settlers in the area of Judea and Samaria, um, no matter how you we are looking at the times of the Gentiles and Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series today will be talking about the times of the Gentiles. Anytime that the Gentile world has control of the Jewish people or the city of Jerusalem. So it's uh, it's one of those things that we are keeping our eyes on. That's why we focus on the Jewish people. God has a program. He's not finished with them. And as I said last week, Israel is God's timepiece for history and prophecy. Well, on the program today, I started out by talking about the times in which we're living, the last days, many signs, and the Lord gave signs to the times of the the last days and what would be taking place, deception being one of them. And we're going to talk about that in, in just a moment. But this last week, there was a little bit of an uproar in the Christian world uh, with a very important pastor, a ministry leader, an important radio program that came under fire for some advice that he gave to a person on a podcast. And I thought, you know, after reading this, uh, I thought back to what uh, my dad would do. He would uh, want to bring that out and talk about it where and enlighten the body of Christ as to where we stand on these kind of things. And I thought I needed to get a hold of what I call uh, America's pastor, former sheriff of Milwaukee County in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, now pastor and his own in his own right, a prophecy teacher, ministry traveling. And uh, I needed to get Dr. Richard Schmidt back on the program. Dr. Schmidt, welcome to the program. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yes, sir. And I know that uh, let's uh, let's try to catch up with you, first of all. You're on your way back from a conference from in Iowa, and you're heading back to Wisconsin, and you're someplace on the road in Illinois. Yeah, I have no idea where I am, but I guess that's all right. <laughs> but uh, we just uh, came from a conference in Ankeny, Iowa, wonderful college called Faith Baptist Bible College. And uh, just have what's called a refresh conference for I don't know several three four hundred pastors. So wonderful time, good uh, good refreshing time. Yes, and and so I, let me ask you about that because a lot of people don't understand. I mean, we 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 think we all know what the pastor does, right? I mean, and I I've, I've never I've I've kind of filled in and sometimes uh, as an itinerant speaker at churches and Sunday after Sunday trying to help. Uh, a church grow, but I really don't know. Pastors need to be refreshed, don't they? Well, they do. Uh, there's so many things that can come into a pastor's life that you're dealing with people that basically are spiritually needing help continually. Mm. And the pastors, quite frankly, they can get burned out or just go through issues of trying to help others. And maybe their own families are suffering and these type of conferences that basically boost them up a bit, gives them a little spiritual charge, and hopefully they go back to their ministries and are ready to serve the Lord with a little new vigor. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot, Dr. Schmidt, and uh, I, that's really hard to do with you because I know that you're always you're always thinking. But what's one thing uh, when you came away from this conference that you felt like really was relevant uh you know, in, in your life and as as the role of the the head pastor, lead pastor with all of your staff and people with you and that you will carry forward to tell other pastors? Well, I think 
probably the most important thing is realizing, number one, that you're in spiritual warfare day and night from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed. And um, I think it, it reinforced one thing that we've been trying to do at our church, which is the concept of biblical literacy and just the absolute importance, staying in the Word of God, studying, uh, not just basically doing things for a message, but really, are you walking with God? Are you praying? Are you sincerely studying God's Word so you know what you're delivering and uh, can help people? So it was just a, a very strong renewal of get back in the Word as strongly as you can. Just don't do it as an exercise, but uh, let it change your life so that you can help others change theirs. Oh, man, that's great. That's great advice for all of us, not just pastors, but for every single one of us. Don't just do it as an exercise, but let the Word of God change your life. I I, I like that a lot. Uh, great word. Well, let's talk about this. I, I thought about this, and uh, the, the gentleman we're talking about, Alistair Begg, very famous. He's a Scottish pastor, very conservative pastor with a national audience. He's on many radio stations, same a lot of stations that we're on. He's been on, and some of those stations have removed him uh, because of the controversy that took place. Now, he's a historically a strong on uh, Christian sexual ethics, which defines sexual relations as permissible only within the covenant of marriage and one flesh union of a man and a woman. But Alistair Begg was asked a question, and he gave some advice, and that's where it has all come about. So let's talk about this, Dr. Schmidt. Fill us in on what you know. Well, my understanding is basically he was asked with, of course, a national audience regarding whether it would be appropriate to attend the wedding of a gay couple. Basically, in this case, it was uh, two men. One was had, quote-unquote, become a transgender and changed their alleged sex to female, which, uh, of course, is impossible, but that's what the world tells mm-hmm. us can be done. So the bottom line is he said, well, you know, my conviction is I'm going to go to this homosexual marriage and uh, give them basically a present, which he stated was going to be a Bible, and try and, quote-unquote, support this particular couple and uh, not alienate myself from them. Well, that uh, didn't go well. Uh, <laughs> bottom line is, uh, from a biblical perspective, and, and I understand there's going to be a, a difference of opinion potentially in even our listeners today, hmm. but uh, what does the Scripture have to say about a homosexual, lesbian, uh, transgender-type marriage? And the Scriptures are just, I mean, from the Old Testament through the New Testament, there is just verse after verse of it's an abomination to God. It's detestable. You look back at the Old Testament times, uh, Leviticus 18, 22, and uh, chapter 20, verse 13 in Leviticus, and those are the words that God uses. It's an abomination. It's detestable. Uh, And then we can get out of the law. It's like, well, that's Old Testament law. Maybe we shouldn't worry about law. Well, the New Testament has plenty to say about it. Again, uh, just a couple of verses, First Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 9 and 10, make it very clear that God, and this is a strong statement from the Lord, he says, those that are effeminate, basically uh, the homosexual lifestyle, and then he actually uses the word homosexual in that statement, and here's what he says, I didn't say it, this is God's word, mm. will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now that's pretty strong language and a pretty strong condemnation. And First Timothy chapter one verse uh, nine through eleven, God makes it very clear again. Uses the same strong language and says this is contrary to sound doctrine. So the issue is, and and of course the conservative Christian crowd was like, wait a minute, this this cannot be. Uh, and it's tough, and I get that. You have a, a relative or somebody that you deeply care about, and uh, they've chosen a sinful lifestyle of homosexuality or lesbianism or the transgender concept, and people have—it's just culturally unacceptable not to accept these things. Well, unfortunately, folks, if you're a Christian we're not here to support the culture. We're here to support the scriptures. And uh, it it is tough. And I understand it's very, very difficult when it's somebody you love that's gone into a sinful lifestyle. So what do you do? Well, the Bible makes it very clear in Ephesians, or I'm sorry, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 15, that we should be speaking the truth in love. So uh, the bottom line is if uh, uh, if this particular radio host would have said, listen, I understand where you're coming from. I understand you're going to do something that is totally contrary to the scriptures. I'm afraid I can't support going to the marriage. I can't support being part of this, but uh, I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to pray for you and uh, share the gospel with them. I mean, it all boils down to if somebody truly is a born again believer in Jesus Christ, they're going to be convicted by the Holy Spirit that this is not a proper thing to do. Uh, Other, uh, Romans chapter 1, I mean, it is so specific about Mm -hmm. men with men and women with women and doing that which is unseemly or improper. And uh, basically God says, listen, if you're going to go into that, you have a debased mind, uh, you're corrupted, you're not following what God wants you to do. So it's very difficult. And I understand that our generation, when the government, when our current president and his administration is promoting transgenderism, when they're promoting homosexuality and lesbianism in grade schools, nonetheless, with, with minor children, our culture has literally gone to the devil. And it's so unfortunate. So those of us that do know Jesus Christ, here's the admonition. Boy, we've got to stand firm. We cannot bow to the world's way of doing business. And again, it's not trying to insult people. It's not trying to hurt them. It's actually trying to support them to do what is right from a biblical standpoint. So if you don't stand for anything, you're going to fall for anything. And uh, it's just, I think it's just so important right now, especially while our culture is in a continual massive decline to stay strong in the scriptures. Jesus said he is the truth, the life, uh, and basically no one can come to the Father except through him. To follow a sinful, debased lifestyle and forsake what God has asked us to do, it's just we cannot go there anymore. We must stand strong. Here we stand. We cannot, we must not be moved. You know, and what do you do with the question of uh, people that are defending Alistair Begg's comments and they're saying, well, where's the compassion? How how do you respond to that? Right. And, And I totally understand where people are coming from. But once again, God did not call us to condone sin. He just didn't. Yeah. And uh, the Bible makes it very 
affirm that we are to stand. And what are we standing? We have to stand yeah. in the truth. Yeah. The best compassion that you can show someone is is say, listen, I, I understand what you're going to do. The scriptures are against it. God calls it a vile, detestable thing. Those are hard words for us to say to a, somebody we love. It yeah. hurts. I yeah. get it. It hurts. But are they ever going to come to Christ if you condone their sin? Yeah. The Bible made it clear. If someone has a debased mind like this, they're not headed towards heaven. Their their mind is corrupt. Their conscience has been seared. So speaking the truth, telling them, listen, I'm going to love you. I, I'm still going to love you. I'm st- I still want to be your friend. I still want to help you. But I cannot condone a sinful act and go to it. It would be like somebody... Here's what maybe some Christians would understand. Would you go to a bar and get drunk just so you could be friends with uh, uh, someone who has that lifestyle? Of course you wouldn't. So it's the same issue. Yeah. You know, and I I also, you know, Christ spoke very clearly condemning (laughs) Pharisees and Sadducees and lost people that had lost their way. The most compassionate thing that he did was dying on the cross for us, and that's where the compassion part came in. Yes, we're not condemning, uh, you know, or condoning. We're not. We don't want to compromise. We want to try to hold to the biblical truths that we understand as we understand God's word, and we do realize that the church is going to come under fire in these last days. <laughs> A word that's used five times in Matthew 24, and those signs is deception. We've talked about it before. And uh, the church, uh, even the very elect, are going to be deceived. And I think we need to search and stay in the word. And I appreciate you, Dr. Schmidt, coming on the program today, giving us information to help the body of Christ to know how to think in these days in which we're living. Thank you so much. God speak to you as you drive and uh, you're ministering in the future. And we've got to have you back because we've got two books out there and another one coming that we need to talk about. Dr. Schmidt, thanks for being on the program today. Well, thanks for having me. God bless. Well, we have to take a break. And when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, you know, a lot of people always ask me, what's Prophecy Today doing? How about an update on our ministry? Well, Jimmy, our ministry is committed to educating the Christian community about the soon return of Jesus Christ. And so we look at that as many opportunities as we have to share that news wherever we can. I know you are involved in a ministry of Bible prophecy conferences around the country. Jimmy, we have our website, prophecytoday.com. We, of course, have our radio program, which is weekly and daily, and our podcast. So all these are ways that we get out the information. Plus, we have a full set of materials, books, uh, CDs, DVDs, many different ways to help you to understand how to understand Bible prophecy, how to study it, put a framework together, you realize what you're looking at, you put these timelines together, and it helps you to understand where we are in God's plans for the end times and then motivates you to live accordingly. Yes, couldn't have said it better, Rick. And uh, go to our website. We'd always love your prayers and uh, financial help if the Lord leads you in that direction. Our legacy series, today we continue our study of the book of Daniel as it fits into the plan of God's plan through the ages. Last time we studied Daniel chapter 2 and how young Daniel, gifted by God, gave the interpretation of the king's dream, 
which is the pre-written history of the Gentile world power. We concluded last time with the head of gold, and that's Daniel chapter 2, verse 38. Today we begin in Daniel chapter 2, verse 39, with the other Gentile world powers as foretold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Let's start our study today in Daniel chapter 2, verse 39. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Look at the next verse, 39. And after thee shall arise another king inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which, uh, see, it tells us now we're moving. Uh, the silver is the second king, arms and a chest of silver. And then it says brass, belly and thighs of brass. So he mentions that to us here so we can know the progression that's going ahead. And uh, it'll be inferior in another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over the entire earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong and of as of iron for as so much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And that's the mighty, awesome kingdom, Gentile world power that came to power and killed everything else. You can read this, the 10 toes of iron and clay. And the reason he's talking about that, there's going to be 10 kingdoms, nations, peoples, whatever, who are going to be there. They're going to be put together, uh, but they're not going to really be a solid unit because of the iron and clay. Iron and clay will not adhere to each other. They can't hold them together. So it's somewhat of a nebulous unity that's going to be there. The stone comes along and it breaks all of this into pieces. And, uh, and then the, uh, look here in, in verse 45. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron and the brass and the clay and the silver and the gold, and the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof. It's talking about Jesus Christ, of course, the stone and that mountain, the kingdom, which is what Jesus Christ is going to establish when he comes into power. Now, you don't have to be a a rocket scientist to really understand Bible prophecy. All you have to do is be a reader of the Word of God. We see that the head of gold is the Babylonian Empire. Go to chapter 8 just a moment. Daniel, some years later, about 50, 55 years later, has a dream. That's chapter 7. We'll look at it. But chapter 8, he has another vision that I think is important because it's going to list the second and the third kingdom by name, who it is. And again, I'm not going to read all the passages. I'm just simply giving you the high points. I want you to get into the book and study. But in verse 3 of Daniel chapter 8, he talks about a ram that has two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And I'm going to tell you the reason for that in just a moment. And then in verse 5, And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touch not the ground. These are all key components of understanding who it is. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. So the ram had two horns, one higher than the other. The goat had one horn right between his eyes. They come together. They have a battle. Look what happens, verse 8. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And it became up of four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. But look here to get the answer to who we're talking about in verse 20. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Mede and Persia, the Medo-Persian empire. So one horn's a little bit bigger. The Persians were the greater of the Medo-Persian empire. Now look at verse 21. 
And the rough goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn that is between his eyes is of the first king. But remember, when he had his battle with the ram, his horn, that one single horn, became four horns. Remember, when the Grecian Empire came to power, Alexander the Great defeated the Medo-Persian Empire. At 32 years of age, he was ruling the world from Babylon on the shores of the Euphrates River, and he died at 32 years old, having only taken 11 years to conquer the world with a ragtag Grecian military force. That's why his feet didn't touch the ground. That's why in chapter 7, he has four wings. Though the leopard, he's referred to as a leopard there in chapter 7, is a fast animal. It's not the fastest. The cheetah is the fastest animal on the earth. But you put four wings on a leopard, he's going to be fast. And that kingdom, the Grecian Empire, came to power quicker than any other empire. And so he names three of the four. Now, logic would say... If you have the Babylonian Empire defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire, defeated by the Grecian Empire, those are the first three who defeated the Grecian Empire. The Roman Empire, which was an awesome empire, which controlled all of the world and broke in pieces every empire before it. This is the time of the beginning of the Gentile world powers. There is a phrase, Jesus used it in the Olivet Discourse. Olivet Discourse, that message he preached on uh, Monday afternoon there on the Mount of Olives uh, during Passion Week, is recorded in three locations, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. At the end of the Olivet Discourse, in the record of it in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, here's what he says. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles are a specific period in history. And let me give you the definition first, and I'll tell you when it started. The definition of the phrase times of the Gentiles, and there's a number of prophetic phrases you need to have a handle on. The definition for the times of the Gentiles, any time in history when Gentile rulers control the Jewish people, and the city of Jerusalem. When the Gentiles control the Jewish people, the city of Jerusalem, that's the time of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles began when Daniel was taken out of Jerusalem with his three Hebrew buddies into Babylon. That was 605 B.C., 597 B.C. Ezekiel and 10,000 other Jews were taken out. And 586 B.C., all the Jews that are still alive were taken into the Babylonian Empire. Gentile world leaders control Jerusalem and the Jews. That has been the case even in the time of Jesus Christ. Who controlled Jerusalem? The Roman Empire. Who controlled the Jews? The Roman Empire. Gentile world power. What about today? Today, they have a nation. Hello? Have you not heard what President of the European Union, the United Nations... Gentile world leaders control Jerusalem and the Jews. And Vladimir Putin of Russia have had to say, they're all Gentile world leaders. They tell Israel, you can't build in Jerusalem. You Jews do not have a right to your eternal undivided capital, which was established by King David 3,000 years ago. You don't have a right to that piece of real estate. Who's controlling Jerusalem and the Jews? Gentile world powers. That moves in, transcends into the seven-year tribulation period. And so we have the times of the Gentiles. 
It starts over there with Daniel going into the Babylonian captivity in history past, and it comes all the way up to the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Who is the major player that controls these times of the Gentiles? And one of the purposes for the tribulation, we'll look at in a moment, is to bring an end to these Gentile world powers. That's the stone hitting the image. Okay, go to chapter 7 now. It's the next key passage, prophetic passage, in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, as I said a moment ago, about 50 years later, Daniel's, he's probably 18 when he gives that interpretation over there in Daniel chapter 2. Now it's uh, 50 years, 52 years later, he's somewhere about 70 years of age, and uh, he is a, he, he's a leader still uh, in, in the first year of Belshazzar. He's still a a major leader, probably number two in the kingdom of the Babylonians at this time. But Daniel is going to have a dream, a vision, receive a prophecy. Look at it with me very quickly, starting in uh, verse two. And Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And the Great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Now, when you think about the Great Sea, and if you look at any ancient Jewish map, the Mediterranean Sea is called the Great Sea. When you look at these Gentile world powers, they were basically in the Mediterranean region, especially the Roman Empire controlled the Mediterranean region. So that starts to help us get a little idea of what he's talking about. Verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Well, if you know anything about history at all, you know that's the emblem for Babylon. Right now at the Ishtar Gate in Babylon, on the shores of the Euphrates River in modern-day Iraq, there are two gold-winged lions at the Ishtar Gate. The winged lion is the emblem of Babylon. And that's what he talks about here. Verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second like a bear, and it raised itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it. Well, the three ribs. Again, we're trying to look at the Scriptures, understand what the Scriptures tell us, understand uh, what is going on at the time. We bring in a literal interpretation. This is the approach we're having to history. Now, let me just remind you what had happened. And I went through this. Remember I told you what happened in 1 Kings chapter 11? After 40 years of reigning as king of Israel, Solomon dies. His son Rehoboam was to have taken over as king of all of Israel. Jeroboam, his adversary who lived in Bethel, didn't like what was going on. He was an antagonist to Solomon, so he took 10 of the tribes and went north. You do remember what they did, don't you? They put up idols to worship in Dan and Bethel. Rehoboam stays in the south. He has the tribe of Judah, which he is a part of, and then he has the tribe of Benjamin, which is right there as well. So he has two tribes in the south. They call them Judah, and they call the ten tribes of the north Israel. 722 B.C., 2 Kings chapter 17, the Assyrian Empire comes in and destroys and takes out the ten tribes in the north. Now think with me just a moment. Where did the Jews go at the end of Genesis chapter 46? Jacob took 70 members of his family and went into Egypt 400 years. That was prophesied when he got the Abrahamic covenant. That's one Gentile world power. The Assyrians defeated the Egyptians and they came to power. That's the second Gentile world power. 
the Babylonians defeat the Assyrians, and they come to power. That's the third, three ribs in the mouth of the bear. Bear's not Russia. The bear is the Medo-Persian Empire who defeats the Assyrian Empire. They defeat the Babylonian Empire who had kept, uh, defeated the Assyrian Empire who defeated the Egyptian Empire. And so the three ribs, the previous Gentile world powers, that's this Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel 2 gives us the prophecy of the times of the Gentiles. That's any time in history when the Gentile world powers control the Jews and the city of Jerusalem. Daniel had a similar dream in Daniel chapter 7 which brings us to the main personality of the tribulation period, the Antichrist. In our study next week, we'll see how the Antichrist comes from the greatest Gentile world power, the Roman Empire. This study will help us to see how God's plan through the ages is actually playing out today. More on that next week. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, former Chicago Bear football player Paul Blair will be with us as we take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Jesus never promised that following him would be popular. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. Still, it's jarring to see Western countries asking Christians to pick and choose the inoffensive parts of the Bible. Floyd Robell of the Voice of the Martyrs Canada says lawsuits in both Canada and Finland have challenged some Bible passages as hate speech. Some want Christians to keep their faith private. You can read what you want to read. You can preach what you want to preach. You can say what you want to say, but it has to be within the context of of the four walls of the church. So far, most of these lawsuits have failed. However, their frequency suggests a cultural shift against Scripture. We can take great confidence in in this world that, um, you know, the Lord is in control and um, he who is with us is greater than he who is against us. Read more about these court cases, their potential consequences, and how to pray at our website. And China's Gen Zers are facing limited career opportunities while looking for more. In July 2023, the government released statistics that 21% of its 16 to 24-year-olds were unemployed. Kurt Rovenstein, president of Bibles for China. In terms of the church, I think the opportunity to share the gospel is very open in that culture. When people are confused, when the dream that they had or the dream that somebody had for them falls apart, They're very open to what is true on a deeper level. Since 2011, Bibles for China has distributed copies of God's Word. Now they're looking to add audio Bibles and SD cards. Ask God to use these efforts to draw young people in China to purposeful life in Christ. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. Look for links at missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Good friend of the family, Dr. Paul Blair, former Chicago Bear football player. Rick, let's catch up with him and see what he's been up to lately. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Pastor Paul Blair with us, former NFL football player, now a Baptist pastor. Pastor Blair was on our DVD, 
is the United States in Bible prophecy. He's a good friend of the family and the ministry. Pastor Blair, thank you for joining us. Rick, it's always a pleasure. Love the work that you guys do, and thanks for the call. Well, Pastor, I noticed that you were at an event. It was very interesting. There was a lot of very powerful people there. It was called the Gathering of Prayer and Repentance. It was in Washington, D.C. Jimmy and I would love to get a report. What happened, and why did you feel it was important to attend? Well, Jim Garlow is a good friend. He he pastored a great church in San Diego, and we actually became friends about 12, 14 years ago because we were involved in engaging the culture as representative pastors, men of God that are supposed to be in charge of engaging the culture and discipling our flocks. So Garlow and I have been friends for a long time, and, and he is, since he's retired from full-time pastoring, he is very active worldwide. In fact, he, he is involved in prayer meetings and gatherings literally uh, across the country. You call him on the phone, you might find him in Israel, might find him in Europe. Uh, in fact, he, his first wife died of cancer. He's now married to a descendant of Oscar Schindler. In fact, Rosemary mm. Schindler Garlow is his wife. So anyway, they are great friends and were involved with the planning and orchestration of this gathering in Washington, D.C., and it was a cry of, of, of repentance. And Jim had reached out to me as a representative of, of pastors. And, of course, pastors have largely been AWOL over the demise of morality in our country and culture. So I was glad to join with other pastors and pray on behalf of, of the fact that we pastors have dropped the ball. And, and then we had representatives literally Rick, from around the world, I mean, from Hungary and, and countries, Christian men and women coming together. And, you know, the first part was wonderful. Great music, great time of heartfelt prayers. We had about 100 members of Congress there, including U.S. senators and representatives. Now, if we will follow up the cry of repentance with a, with a behavior that actually reflects our repentance, then maybe God will choose to bless us with one more great awakening before the rapture, if we've got that much time. Pastor, in the documentary that you did with our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, we talked about how Christian men and principals were involved in the creation of America and how America has been used to help fulfill Bible prophecy, specifically their role in helping Israel become a state. But that's past history, Pastor. Right now, in 2024, what role do you see for those of us who view themselves as most importantly Christians, but we also want to be concerned citizens as well? What role do you see that we have to play? Well, let's face it. The Bible tells us that it was God that that defeated one world government initially and will again when Jesus comes back and sets up his one world government. But going back to Babel and Nimrod with that that idea of a, a humanity that was not submissive to God, unified. You know, God divided them as nations to uh, help end that effort. Well, now I see us as going full circle. You know, when you see the activities of the World Economic Forum and those globalists, quite frankly, I see a lot of similarities from the ten toes of Daniel 2 with the World Economic Forum and those that are trying to impose global tyranny is what they're trying to do. But as I had the pleasure of being with you and your brother and your dad and recording that video, you know, America has been the exception. When we look back at 6,000 years of human history, you go all the way back to Nimrod and Babel, and the typical default form of government is a tyrant ruling over subjects. Now, understand that terminology. A tyrant, a king, a strong man ruling 
not governing, but ruling over subjects of the king. Only in America have we flipped that upside down. And when you go back and you look at those, those first uh, settlers at Plymouth, that was basically little more than a church relocating to the new world to evangelize and build a new world. But rather than top-down uh, ruling over men, they actually followed their system of a, of a church constitution and bylaws, electing a pastor, and applied that same principle to civil government. In fact, I think that that's biblical. I mean, Moses said that we were to choose out from among us capable men that feared God, loved truth, and hated covetousness. And then they were charged with in, enforcing the rule of law, which at the time was, the, you know, the Torah, as God gave it to the, to the Jews at Mount Sinai. So only in America do we have this idea of people having God-given rights, they creating a limited government, delegating few responsibilities to that civil government, and then promising to be subject to the rule of law. And then we have elected officials as public servants that are there to secure our unalienable God-given rights. So America is, is upside down. The, the, the majority of world history has been a strong man ruling over subjects. Only in America do we have citizens that have unalienable God-given rights, and the purpose of the governing authority is to secure and to protect those God-given rights. So America has been exceptional. And the reason? It goes back to the pulpit. From all the Puritans and the separatists that settled the political state of Massachusetts, to Pastor Roger Williams that started the political state of Rhode Island, to Pastor Thomas Hooker that started the political state of Connecticut, to Reverend William Penn that started the political state of Pennsylvania. America was different because New England especially was, was founded on a fear and reverence of God. And they tried to apply as many biblical principles into their form of civil government as they possibly could. And we have been enjoying the byproduct of the blessings of liberty. You know, Rick, we're the only Christians in 2,000 years that haven't been persecuted for our faith. And we are dangerously on the edge. Of course, I think the Lord's return is coming soon. I expect the, the trumpet to sound any day. But if, if the Lord tarries for another five years or ten years, I want to do everything I can to ensure the blessings of liberty for my children and for my grandchildren. I don't want them to be martyred for their faith. I, 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 if God willing, we will see a revival and we'll not have to endure persecution here as Christians in North America. Pastor Paul Blair, a former NFL player for the Chicago Bears, who is now a Baptist pastor, and he has dedicated himself to sharing the gospel and educating the Christian community. Pastor, thank you so much for joining us today. God bless you, Rick. Thank you. Dr. Paul Blair and uh, Rick, thank you so much for doing that. You know, after everything that we've heard on the program today, we can't help but encourage you to live a pure, productive, holy life in an unholy world. The rapture could happen at any moment. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.